You're listening to a special episode of Strike the Match. In this podcast, we talk about the topic of sexual abuse, that which is specifically related to the mission field and within the local church. I recognize that this topic is of a sensitive nature and will be difficult for some listeners, but it is one that we must address. This past week, NBC in the United States released a story on the sexual abuse of children connected to New Tribe's mission, the mission agency that is now Ethnos 360. And also the Houston Chronicle released a lengthy article about 700 victims of sexual abuse at the hands of Southern Baptist Church leaders over a period of 20 years. My guest today on Strike the Match is Dr. Tate Cockrell. We talk about this important issue, and we talk about how to think about it in light of the Word of God and some practical steps to move forward in a healthy direction. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. This past week, as you well know, if you've been keeping up with anything in the news, uh, two uh, stories broke uh, on national media in the United States, one related to sexual abuse with the uh, mission agency formerly known as New Tribes Missions, uh, now Ethnos 360. And then just as of yesterday, the story came out from Houston about the sexual abuse that's uh, taken place over, I believe it was 20 years, two decades, uh, within the Southern Baptist Convention among uh, different members of Southern Baptist churches. And uh, and so, therefore, there has been a great deal of conversation and discussion that has been taking place with just in the past few days. And so, so I wanted to do this special episode of Strike the Match, and uh, it's it's a it's a privilege uh, to be able to to have this conversation today with with uh, Dr. Tate Cockrell. Uh, Dr. Cockrell is the associate professor of counseling at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, he's been in the ministry for 29 years. He has a Ph.D. in psychology and counseling from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a, he's a, he's a friend. Uh, I have known him. I've served alongside of him in local church ministry. He has a, a heart for the local church. Uh, he has a heart for reaching the nations with the gospel and seeing underage people groups come to come to faith. And so uh, as soon as I uh, started thinking about who can I have on to have this conversation with about this particular topic uh, related to sexual abuse within or on the mission field and in the church, uh, his name immediately came to mind. And so, so uh, Brother Tate, I am so thankful that uh, you can be with us today. So welcome to Strike the Mat. Thanks, J.D., man. It's just really a privilege to be with you today. Thanks for the opportunity. Help, help us to think about this. So do, do you think that, that sexual abuse is increasing uh, or it's just now being reported because of the movement uh, within the states? I think it's both, to be honest with you. I I do believe that sexual abuse is, is has likely been increasing. I think it would be hard for us to say that that's not been happening merely because we know that uh, the porn industry is the the billion dollar industry that it is. We know that uh, you know sexual perversions continue to increase in our world, and and sexual abuse is just one extension of that. People people by and large they don't start being predators. They they gateway into that. There are other things that lead to that. So the more you increase those 
gateway types of, of behaviors like pornography, uh, I think you're going to see an increase in, in sexual abuse. And so I, I do believe that uh, you know, a lot of these reports that we're seeing, it, it seems like there is an escalation. And I think there has been an escalation. Uh, but uh, it, I don't, this is not a new phenomenon. It's not like, you know, oh, since pornography is so bad, uh, now that means that, you know, all this abuse is happening. This, this has been going on, not, not just for decades, this has been going on for centuries. And um, unfortunately, in our world today, uh, and in particular in the world that you and I live in, in the world of, you know, theological education and, uh, you know, the church world, the theological world, um, it, we've not, we've just not done a good job of handling this and we've not been, uh, friendly and, uh, and supportive and we've not been caregivers to individuals who have suffered from divorce, uh, from, from, uh, from abuse. And so as a result of that, women have not reported it until they have now gotten to this place where there's been kind of a, a safety net, a safe space that's been created for them. And now that they've had this safe space that's been created, all, all these women are coming forward and saying, you know, here's here's you know, basically me too. Here's what's here's what's happened to me. So, well, let, let me let me pick up on that for, for a second because you talked about a safety net. So, uh, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was related to the the reasons why a few uh, such cases are, are are you know have been reported among among the churches and and on the mission field if they have been if if this if this is that extensive and I agree with you on on your assessment and it has been going on for a lengthy period of time uh, again just case in point the two uh, news stories that I just mentioned a moment ago if if it's just now that that these women and men as well I mean you'd you'd admit that you know men are receiving the abuse also, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about it. Certainly the numbers are higher among the female population than the male population, but it's, it's happening in, in, with men as well. So, so if, if this sort of safety net has just recently come about, what is it? Why is it within the, the, the church world, whether that is on the mission field or whether that is within local churches, why is it that we have not allowed that safety net to be in place, which should have been in place a long, long time ago. Why is it taken, if I can use this expression, more of a secular mainstream movement to 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 pr- provide that source of comfort? That's a great, it's a great question, JD. And I think that there's, I think there are some kind of well-meaning reasons, like we had good intentions that unfortunately didn't lead to good actions. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a couple of those. And then in, in some cases, we didn't have good intentions. And so, you know, let's let's start about the let's talk about the good intention side first. Um, I think the good intention side is because we're a redemptive community in, in the church. Uh, we want to believe that God can make anybody new and whole. And, you know, we want to do our best to not see individuals lives destroyed. And if there's a way that, you know, someone can come to repentance and, uh, you know, can find new life and healing and forgiveness and all those sorts of things. Then in the church, uh, we we want to try to make that happen. And so, in in a very uh, misguided way, though we had well intentions with 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 trying to help the uh, the abuser, you know, experience new life and grace and get counsel and all that. What we didn't realize in many cases is that we were doing that at the expense of the abused and. And so what was happening is, again, very well-intentioned. I do believe in many cases it was very well-intentioned, but really 
not understanding uh, the nature of an abuser, the nature of what causes abuse, the the extensive grooming process that happens, all the things that go into that. And what we're discovering now in many cases is, you know, leaders were told and leaders responded, but they just didn't respond in the right way. They didn't report it to authorities. Uh, you know, they didn't necessarily believe the, you know, the, uh, the abused right off the bat. And maybe even in some cases, we not only didn't protect the abused, we didn't protect the future abused, the individuals who might be abused again in the future by that abuser because the abuser was protected by the church, by the entity or the organization. So what ended up happening, what, what we end up finding many years later is in many cases is there's a long trail and a long history of an abuser abusing individuals in different places. And each time they're caught, they say the same thing, you know, um, I, I want to get better. I want to get help. I'm sorry. I'm repentant. And because there's no paper trail, maybe they've, you know, they've never been labeled a sex offender. They've never gone to jail. There's never been a police report. If they jump from church to church or agency to agency or organization to organization, there's no way for us to know that if all we're doing is running standard background checks. So every time if I'm a pastor, every time that I don't make that report, every time there's not a police report that's filed, all I'm doing is enabling that guy the next time he goes to the next church to do the exact same thing. Or the next time he goes to the next agency or the next country, if he's a missionary, I'm just enabling him to do the, the, the same thing over again because there's no paper trail about this guy's or, or lady's behavior. I, I think the other thing, I think another good intention here, and this is, we could spend 20 minutes talking about this topic, but we won't. Um, you know, in the world that I live in, in terms of, of being a, 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 a both a kind of a pastor and a counselor and a, a counselor trainer, uh, we had good intentions in wanting to protect the confidentiality of of the abused and of the abuser. And so, in many cases, reports weren't made, and they were done under the kind of the misunderstanding of, of priest penitent privilege. And so, you know, pastors thought, you know, uh, uh, I can't share this, you know, because this was told to me in confidence and, you know, I'm a minister. And so they kind of misunderstand the role of priest penitent privilege. That, that doesn't mean that just because I'm a minister that anything anybody ever tells me that, that, that I've got that privilege. But many people have asserted that over the years. And so it was a good intention, but it was a misunderstanding of the of kind of the policy of, of peace penitent, priest penitent privilege. And so that's the, that's kind of the good intention side. We we're quick to say and teach because it's biblical that there are consequences to sin. I mean that there, you know, when I sin, there is always a consequence that comes, but, but I get the sense that in situations like this, for some reason, we're not willing to, say, okay, you may be repentant, you may have changed your ways, but, but there, is, there is a consequence, and that consequence may be legal matters against you. That's right. Yeah, you're exactly right, J.D. We ha especially whenever we're, start, whenever we're dealing with the issue of kids, uh, we, we, what we've often done is we've come down on the, on the side of morality on issues that are issues of legality, and those are two different things. It's it is it's it's not only immoral for someone to abuse. It is in the case of children, it's illegal, and so 
we're making moral decisions about, you know, we want we don't want to ruin this guy's life or this lady's life. We we want to see them experience redemption and wholeness. And but to your point, and because it's biblical, you're going to reap what you sow and there are consequences to our actions. We're taking we're trying to take away those consequences or trying to circumvent those consequences in the life of the person. And and it's and honestly, J.D., it's not just to the detriment of the abuse. That's even to the detriment of the abuser. We know this as parents, right? You take away the consequences away from your kids. They never learn the true impact of their behavior. We're not helping them any if they never have to experience the consequences. And that's that's certainly true whenever we deal with individuals who are abusers as well. Yeah, and and it sounds like when, whenever we are not willing to to submit to the legal authorities on this particular matter, like you you said a moment ago, uh, that individual could move on to the next mission agency, the next mission field, the next local church, and could continue to multiply his or her efforts. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's oftentimes what they that's oftentimes what they did. The minute that they got caught, of course, they, they act repentant. And of course, when someone's caught and they're facing the, the idea, we, we, it boggles my mind how pastors haven't realized this before now, when an individual says they're sorry and they're repentant and they'll do anything, well, of course they'll do anything. They don't want to go to prison. And so, of course, they're going to be willing to do anything that we ask them to do. That's not a definition, really, of whether or not they're going to be repentant, because for a short period of time, the abuser, he's, he's going to be willing to do those things. But if they don't suffer the consequences, we've just enabled them to move on to the next place. Right. There, I mean, there there is redemption, there's forgiveness, uh, there's restoration in Christ. Uh, and, you know, by God's grace, someone changes his or her ways, but it there may be legal ramifications that they have to live with for the rest of their life that, here. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So so what can mission agencies, and, and of course churches as well, what could mission agencies do uh, to better prevent uh, sexual abuse? Well, I think, one, they just need to become more informed about sexual abuse. You know, who does it? Why do they do it? What does it look like? Uh, so they can recognize those those signs and symptoms and potential employees and potential communities that those agencies serve. Uh, what does that What does that need to look like? I mean, unfortunately, some of this some of this happened because of good intentions. Some of it happened because of not good intentions, and some of it happened just because of ignorance and us not knowing what abuse actually looks like. And so, I think one, we just need to become more informed about abuse. Two, uh, better background checks, making sure that we follow through on those, making sure that those are extensive. And that background checks aren't just relegated to, hey, I'm going to pay $25 to the agency that's going to, you know, go out and run a background check and tell me whether or not this person, had, you know, is on the sex offender registry. But doing better ba- background checks in terms of, of references and references on references and those kinds of things, I think that'll helpful. That'll be helpful. But I think maybe one of the biggest things we can do to protect people both on the field and the agencies. Uh, and, and churches that we serve is that we just establish a culture of accountability and proactivity. Uh, you and I, before we came on the before we came on on the the program, um, we were talking about uh, Dr. Aiken's letter this morning that he sent out to our seminary family. Uh, Dr. Aiken, the president of SCBTS, where he basically just outlines a a safe place for our whole seminary community to say, you know, basically here's what's happening in the culture. Here are the reports that have been released, and and he just basically said. As the president of this institution, I want you to know that if you've ever been abused in any way, 
we are here for you and we want you to reach out to us and let us know when we're going to do anything and everything we can to come alongside you to try to serve you and support you and get you the help that you need and to walk this journey with you. That's a very different mindset than the mindset that the church and a lot of missions agencies have had up until now. Um, you know, it's almost like we're afraid to get that email. We're afraid to get that call. We don't know what to do. We don't want to be dragged into the middle of it. But I think when you establish a culture of accountability and proactivity, we enable individuals to be able to bring darkness into the light. And they feel the freedom to be able to do that because ultimately, J.D., you and I both know that lies don't liberate people, right? The scripture says that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so with accountability, proactivity and bringing dark things into the light, uh, that's what's that's when I, that's what's going to help us prevent sexual abuse. When abusers on the mission field, in our churches, in our schools, in our agencies or organizations, when they know that they're not going to be able to hide in the communities that we're serving in, you know, like if they're part of our seminary community here at Southeastern, if if they read an email like that that says, hey, listen, we want everybody to know that if you've been abused, we want to know about it and we want to come alongside you. Every abuser that's ever abused someone at Southeastern is now cringing in their boots thinking, oh my goodness, my story's about to be told. And, and don't think that that won't affect anybody else who's thinking about abusing, right? Because we're establishing that culture of accountability and proactivity. And, and then lastly, I would just say that what we can do to help prevent it is we can just, you know, take church discipline and by church discipline, um, you know, I, I, I mean, when we take sins seriously and we can do that both in the local church and on the mission field, when, when we take church discipline more seriously, that's one of the ways that, that we can healthily prevent that, that sexual abuse because people know that their sin is going to be held to account. And, and connected to that with, with church discipline, you know, as we as, as we've talked before in other settings, there's that corrective discipline, obviously, that you know, they just mentioned. And there's that formative discipline. You know, how can we do a better job of teaching people to obey Christ, to reject some of those gateway opportunities, such as pornography and, and a variety of other things that could potentially lead in the direction of being an abuser. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Our only approach to abuse can't be you're going to get in trouble if you abuse. Right. I mean, that, that's, you know, the prisons are filled with individuals who knew the consequences of their sin before they did it, right? And they, they chose to do it anyway because they perceived that the reward was greater than the risk of getting caught and the punitive actions that they were going to experience if they were caught. And so at the end of the day, we need to be, we need to be having healthier conversations with our kids and with one another about what is, what does healthy purity look like? What does healthy sexuality look like? Uh, how do we reject, how do we not just not look at pornography? How do we pursue purity in our life and how do we esteem one another and how do we care well for one another? Those are issues of discipleship and sanctification you're not going to read that in a sexual abuse prevention policy, right? Those are those are equally important on the prevention side because that really changes the heart of an individual, and ultimately that's when that's what's going to prevent abuse more than anything is when we change the hearts of the communities that we serve. So, what should agencies and and even uh, particular individuals, even missionaries that would be listening right now, what should agencies do uh, whenever sexual abuse uh, is revealed? 
a lot of it depends on the role of the individual that that learns about the abuse. Certainly, there are individuals who are mandatory reporters, and a lot of that depends on the state and the country in which in which you reside. You know, by and large, you know, my rule of thumb is everybody's a mandatory reporter, especially as it relates to minors. And so, you know, are there nuances where, you know, uh, priests or pastors, you know, have the priest penitent privilege where they don't have to break confidentiality? Um, you know, for me, I think there's a difference between what's legally permissible and what's morally and ethically right. And so I think if we know about abuse, then then we ought to report it. Then we ought to bring it into the light. And so I think the first thing that we have to do is we just have to bring that sin, you know, to light. So we need to we need to make the report to whatever the agency is that is uh, that kind of uh, sh- shepherds the welfare of of uh, of of our kids and and of our adults. And so uh, so we need to report one, two. We need to we need to support the abuse. We need to come alongside them. Uh, we need to care for them, support them. We need to believe them. And I'm not saying we need to believe them blindly with no investigation. I mean, certainly by reporting it, what we're saying is we want this to be investigated. And just because someone says that they're abused doesn't necessarily mean that they have been abused. But I think the statistics really do bear out that, you know, probably by a score of 100 to 1, uh, if not more, we, we've been erring on the side of we don't report and, and abuse was actually there. Our errors have not been on the side of we reported something that wasn't actual. And so, you know, we need to be willing to to believe an, an abused individual, to care for them, to support them. We need to allow authorities to do their job. If we turn it over to authorities, if we turn it over to CPS or DHS or, or a police department, we need to allow them to do their job. We are not good as missions organizations, as churches, pastors, um, you know, educational institutions. Uh, we're not good at being self-investigators. We're not trained to know how to do that. And as such, we can actually make matters worse. And and honestly, J.D., that's what's caused a lot of these problems from the very beginning is a report was made to a pastor and the pastor said, well, I'm going to dig into this and I'm going to do this investigation. And he doesn't know anything about childhood you know, sexual abuse or, or any kind of sexual abuse, maybe for that matter. And so he's not equipped to know the right questions to ask or the right things to look for. And so nothing gets reported, nothing gets turned over because they investigated themselves. And so we don't need to be self-investigators. We need to allow people who are professionals who know a lot more about this uh, than we do. We need to allow them to do, you know, to do their job. And then as a church or as a missions agency, we need to enact appropriate consequences based on what those investigations show. We need to be willing to allow abusers to suffer the consequences of that. And if that means people lose their jobs, even if they're friends of ours, and that, that this is where it gets you know, really, uh, really difficult is we don't want to believe that people close to us can do these kinds of things. And so uh, we need to allow those consequences to stand even when those even when those consequences are uh, are difficult. Um, and then and then we need to provide opportunities for reconciliation, for restitution, for uh, individuals to be redeemed as a result of all of this, both on the abused and the abuser side. Uh, as I said, this used this language earlier in our time together. We are we are a redemptive community, and so we need to look for opportunities to use a very tragic situation for um, for our good, 
for the good of the abuser, for the good of the abused, and ultimately for God's glory. Right, because I mean, we we've, we have got to think differently about uh, this situation than what the world thinks, which I believe, and I'm, I'm guessing you would agree with this, that, that our standard, uh, our ethic toward all of this is to be even higher than what the world has to, has to offer. So we've got to think differently about this. We, we have to, to recognize that um, it does involve things that are beyond us, that this, this is a, a serious uh, evil related to sinful behavior and sinful actions. And, and the, the repercussions and the, you know, the, the fallout is, is, is devastating. Um, Tate, there, there could be a man or a woman listening to this podcast right now, and, and, and they uh, have been abused, but, but they, have not, uh, they have not shared this, and they're needing help. They're needing, um, uh, they're needing you know, assistance and healing in all of this. You know, what, what should be their steps as far as what they should do next? You know, chances are if they're, if they're uh, listening to your podcast, they're, they're a believer in Christ, and they're a member of a local church. And so I would say go to, your, go to your pastor and talk to your pastor about it. Inform them. Tell them that you want to make a report, that you want to let the authorities know, particularly if it was childhood uh, sexual abuse, uh, that you want to get the authorities involved. Um, and, and then you don't just leave it up to the pastor to do those things. Just say you want to get care and support from your church and from your pastor and, and the staff there in your area. But then you also take the step as the person who was abused, you take the step to reach out to the appropriate authorities and, and let them know there's, uh, usually hotlines that you can call, or you can just call your local, you know, child protective services. And, and you can, you can tell them, uh, at, at the end of the day, what we want individuals to know and understand who have been abused, um, because what, what happens in childhood sexual abuse, J.D., and I won't take long to say this, but one of the things that happens in childhood sexual abuse is the abused loses their voice. Like, they're, they're told by adults, you can't tell anybody. If you tell anybody, you're going to get in trouble. If you tell anybody, I'm going to hurt you or I'm going to hurt your family or, you know, your family's going to go to jail. They're, they're told all kinds of lies. And so as a result of that, they lose the ability to speak up for themselves. And if someone's listening to your show today, what I would say is if you were abused and you're an adult, speak up. You know, let's just say you've got a young lady who's listening to, to your show today and she was abused at 11 years old. And at 11 years old, she couldn't speak out for herself. But today she's 35 years old. I would hope that that 35-year-old young woman would speak up for that 11-year-old girl who couldn't speak up for herself. She's an adult today. She can speak up and she can have a voice and she can reach out and she can tell somebody. She can tell a pastor. She can tell a trusted friend. She can tell the authorities. She can give voice that that 11-year-old never had. And so bring that into the light by giving voice to the abuse of that child because they couldn't do it whenever they were threatened, whenever they were being manipulated and power was being exerted over them as a young child. My guest today on this special episode of Strike the Match has been Dr. Tate Cockrell. Uh, he has given us a, a wealth of just excellent information in a very abbreviated amount of time. I, I know, Tate, you and I could spend an enormous amount of time talking about any of these matters, but I'm hoping uh, for you as the listener that, that it, has, it has caused you to think 
Uh, it has caused you to, to process some things within your own agency, uh, in the field, maybe the team that you're leading, maybe it's in your local church. Uh, I, I'm hoping that this is, has, has caused you to, to not only think, but then also begin to act upon some of those thoughts. Uh, it, it may be that, uh, for those of you that are listening, uh, that some repentance needs to take place, some, some healing, some reconciliation needs to take place, so, some, some reporting uh, uh, of matters need to take place. And so I, I don't know what the, the circumstance or situation is where, where you are, uh, but this is an issue uh, that, that it has its tentacles that just extend all throughout uh, both the kingdom of God and even into parts of, of the, the world of the unbeliever as well. And it clearly hinders uh, the expansion of the good news, the gospel across the people groups of the world. It hinders the health of the church. It hinders the, well, the witness of the church. And so uh, today I'm hoping that, uh, that this podcast and this, uh, this special edition will be helpful to you and what you're doing. Tate, thank you so much for being with us. If people want to track you down on social media, is there a place where they could potentially reach you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, both of my uh, uh, names or IDs on Facebook and Twitter are Tate Cockrell, just like my name, T-A-T-E-C-O-C-K-R-E-L-L. I'm on Twitter and Facebook both um, with, uh, with those IDs. Well, thank you, brother, so very much for being with us to talk about such a, such a sensitive and delicate, but yet a very, very important topic as well. Yeah, thanks, J.D. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for the work that you're doing in taking this uh, to individuals who are even on the mission field, because this isn't just a national problem with us. It's, it's international, so we've got people all over the world. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. You can find J.D. on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.